Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Here's the one message that I want you to come out with this morning. is really to have a deep realization within your heart of just the amount of influence and power that God has placed within you where you are and in your situation. I think we've started this morning very much looking at the big picture, trying to understand what God is doing sort of on a more macro scale. But we need to understand that everything God does on a macro scale, he works out from you and from me in our situations, in our families, in our workplaces. And as each one of us catch his heart and begin to work those things out through our gifts, through the positioning and the spheres of influence that God has given us, the addition and then the divine multiplication of those works creates and results in macro change. Think about it. Jesus invested his whole life in 12 disciples. He had crusades and rallies where 5,000 men were fed. Who knows how many were there? 10, 15, 20,000 people. But those rallies are not what produced the change. What produced change was 12 individuals who realized and had an experience of the greatness that had been placed within them that they had laid hold of in this new kingdom. And as they begin to share out of the abundance of that, people's lives began to change. The kingdom of God advanced. And we see the evidence of that, not just in people believing the gospel and getting saved, but in signs and wonders and healings and miracles and deliverances. And deliverance is a big deal. Very often we think deliverance is just about deliverance from demonic oppression. Demonic depression has diff oppression has different forms. It's not just that a demon resides within a person. Demonic oppression also in our day and age, specifically, we see it very prevalent, is where demonic forces in the heavenlies control a mindset. They control a narrative. If you like, they control the propaganda that drives whole communities, that drives a way of thinking that is contrary to the word of God. What I want you to understand this morning and really settle down deep in your heart, and I want to say this up front, it's just how much influence God has given you where you are, doesn't matter who you are, to bring about kingdom change for his glory. Pastor Andreas mentioned that the last, you know, last week, he spoke about Psalm 91. The week before that, I spoke on Psalm 103. The Lord has led both of us to minister along the lines of personal security. Psalm 103 really talks about the blessing the Lord and thinking about and remembering his power, his faithfulness, his goodness to us as individuals over our lives, over our years, focusing on things like his forgiveness his abundant grace, his faithfulness, his goodness, which produces in us an attitude of gratitude and worship to God. We remember who our God is and the good things he has done for us. Psalm 91, again, focuses on divine protection and preservation. It's the secret place of the Most High where we abide in his love, embrace his love, and share his love with others. At the heart of both of these messages is the idea of personal security in our God, in who our God is, that we are secure in his love. We are secure in his salvation. We are secure in his promises. Why? So that we don't have to worry or spend our time chasing after or trying to gain or attain these things. You know, it's good and it's right for us to remember God's nature toward us. That's the essence and the spirit of worship. Because when we are secure in his love, when we are secure in his protection, we are freed and liberated to pursue his interests. You see, as long as I am insecure concerning any area or anything in my life, I, I am vested in the interest of bringing that area into a perception of security and strength. 
Very often, that's all it is. It is just a guise. But when I have found true security in Christ, I am secure. I don't need to make a name for myself. I understand that he is my provider. I understand that he is my source, that he is my healer. And there's so many various and varying different aspects of the life and nature of God that we need to find ourselves in this place of complete trust, complete faith, complete security in who he is so that we are not anxious in these areas. This is how Jesus said it. Okay. Matthew chapter six. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you're welcome to do so. I'm reading from the New King James. Matthew chapter six. And Jesus we are very familiar with verse 30, 33, which says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. But you see, we need to cushion that verse in the context that Jesus is placing it. He begins the narrative in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, by saying that I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing. So here Jesus is saying, guys, don't worry about these things. I've got this. He goes on later on in the chapter, verse 31, he says, therefore do not worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What shall we wear? For these things the Gentiles seek. In other words, those who have no God are preoccupied with their lives, with their security, with their provision and health and wellness and well-being. But he said, your heavenly father knows you need these things. Let's pause for a moment. That is why it is good for us to go and remember the Psalm, like Psalm 103, like we did a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 91, like we did last week. Because in doing so, we remember that our heavenly father not only knows we need these things, but has again and again and again shown himself faithful in these areas. He then goes on to say, Therefore, seek first. First means number one. Not after the things that the Gentiles are seeking. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What is right in his eyes and to be in right alignment with him. And all these other things that everyone else seeks after will be added to you. Added to you. You see, if you seek after them, you have to bring them in. But God, in this promise, Jesus says, if you seek after the kingdom of God, his interests, he will undertake to add all of these natural cares and worries to you. So you don't even need to worry about them. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Folks, the principle is this. When we are not encumbered, by our worries of self-preservation, our own insecurities, we are liberated or freed up to pursue the kingdom of God. What does that mean? And, and what does that look like? Well, very simply, it means two things. Number one, it means that I discover and experience the reality of the freedom and security I have in Christ for myself as I pursue him as I place my trust in his word and fellowship with him and abide in that. That doesn't mean that I have no cares. That doesn't mean I have no worries and everything in my life is peachy all the time. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was the case? One day, I believe that will be the case. But the Bible says there'll be a day where there's no more tears. There'll be no more sorrow, nothing more to be anxious or worried about. We don't live in that world right now, clearly. But what it does mean is that I've learned in the midst of my situation to depend completely on God. I have learned how to cast my cares, my worries, my anxieties over to him and entrust them to him because he is my father and he loves me. And I rest easy. I rest with peace in my heart, knowing that God has got this, that God is with me. But it also means that my interests and God's interests are not in competition. It means I can give my heart completely over to the interests of the kingdom of God, knowing that those that 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 in doing so, it's not like a conflict. Oh, if I give it all to God, what will be left for me? And how? Do, what about me and my family? There's a conflict of interests there. I think many believers today struggle with this idea of a conflict of interests because 
you know, if I come to God, that means I've got to give up everything. Well, yes, it does. But if we're not prepared to give up everything, we live in the state of tension within our hearts, trying to hold on to our lives, our will, our world. And also trying to hold, lay hold of the kingdom of God. We can't have it both ways. So the first thing is that Jesus is saying, I want you to discover this place of deep security in who I am. In my promises, in my presence, that you will know the peace of God that passes understanding so that not only you can walk in it and be a light, but that you can lead others into the same place. Um, I've shared the the story before and this testimony before. Uh, I have a neighbor in my neighborhood. They recently put up cameras around their property. And I know that that this this particular woman hardly sleeps most nights because she's sitting so worried. She's on all the she's on all the the the, um, the neighborhood watch chat groups and this person was spotted and this thing was going on and that thing and this happened in this address and I actually took myself off that thing years ago because I wasn't interested in finding out everything that was going on in my life. This person can't sleep at night. And I, it was such a wonderful privilege for me to share with this woman. You know, what I do at night, I lie down on my pillow and every night I say to the Lord, Father, I thank you. I don't ask your angels to, to I don't ask you to take care of me. I thank you that you have promised that you give your angels charge over me. I thank you that your presence is with me, that you cover and protect our family. And so tonight I rest easy and I sleep trusting completely in your protection and in your grace. In that, my heart finds tremendous peace. Now, that's just a small example. There's many other areas we have to work this out in our lives. But with that, I turn over and I snore. Ask my wife. It's probably true. I, I don't struggle with that anxiety. That doesn't mean that it's not there. That doesn't mean that things are not happening. But it means that in that one area in my heart, I've connected with the word of God. My faith has engaged with it. And I found rest and peace in who God is and trust wholly and completely in his peace and his protection over myself and my family. Not only that, but I can share that with, I've shared that with that woman. And I want to tell you, it's made a difference. You know, I, I, I reach out to her quite regularly and I can see the change. I can see difference happening. And it's wonderful that I can lead somebody into activating their faith in an area of their lives, which I have found life. And that is what you and I are called to do, is to take the life that we have received and share it with others. Jesus said it this way. He's praying for his disciples and he says to the Lord, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. You see, you and I are in this world. And God's desire is not just to get us out of this world. Folks, the, the journey of kingdom life is, is not about getting saved so that we can get out of here and go to heaven. It's really important we understand that. The, the, the journey of kingdom life is so that we can bring heaven down to earth. The realities of heaven, the will of God that always happens in heaven, that we can bring that into manifestation in our sphere of influence. If it was all about us getting out of here, folks, we can arrange that quite quickly. I'll probably end up in the chooky for it, but I could get most of us out of here pretty quickly if, if, if that was what it's all about. But it's not about that. Jesus came that we may have life. Where? Here on earth. His life. And have it to the full. In the midst. Folks, if we think we're in rough times, can you imagine what the people of Israel must have been going through under Roman occupation? The early church being torched literally up in the streets. They would put people in cages and douse them with fuel and set them alight. Roman candles is what they were called for the faith, for believing. We think we got it rough because the government tells us to stay at home in our nightgowns and do church like that. We, we don't have a clue. <laughs> they had it rough. You see, the disciples had a pivotal role to play in bringing others into their experience. Jesus gave them a taste of life and he said to them, I want you to go and share this. And I want to say to you that you and I have a wonderful privilege and responsibility in this regard, we have a role 
to play. I want to say to you this morning that you are more than just a pretty face. In fact, that's the title of my message today. More than just a pretty face. To which you're thinking, Michael, in your case, not even a pretty face. And that's fine. Be that as it may. I want to share with you this morning some things that 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 I that I want to draw this morning from the story of Esther. That's what really came to me powerfully this morning. And like I said, if I don't get through everything else I want to share this morning, the main the main picture is going to be the realization that there is much more within you and far greater influence that you and I are capable of than what we probably realize. And next week, if I can't finish this morning, I'll break that down and start making that more and more practical for you and for me. But what is the most popular phrase that comes out of the book of Esther? I'm actually going to put the, the, the question out there. There's one verse or one part of a verse that just about everybody's heard of when, when thinking about the book of Esther. Who thinks they know what it is? 4.14. Which says? Could it be that you were born for such a time as this? Could it be that you were born for such a time as this? Well done, Karen. Brownie points for you. So I want to just, I want to <laughs> work through the narrative of, of this story. Uh, and, and probably the bulk of our time this morning is going to be spent doing that because, you know, there's the old adage that says the devil is in the details. I actually think God and the Holy Spirit is very much in the details of the story because it's quite a complicated story in some senses. But it, it's when we can see the hand of God at work in it, I want you to realize how powerful our prayers are and how, how powerful and influential you and I can be. And we can see that in this story. So let me give you just the brief and I want to break it down. So that we understand the narrative into which that incredible phrase is placed, is cushioned. There's a guy, he's a king of the Persian Empire, King Ahasuerus. I think that's how it's said. We'll just call him the king from now on. Yeah, that one. Uh, he felt he, 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 was in a, he was having this parade of just parading his greatness and his wealth and his military might. And one of the things he wanted to parade was his wife. Probably a bad idea on most days, a very bad idea on this particular day, because his wife was beautiful. He called the queen to come and show everybody her beauty, and the queen refused. She was not in the mood. She was still in her nightgown, and her mascara wasn't on yet. So the king felt disrespected by his queen, and his advisors around him basically said, listen, if you allow yourself to be disrespected by the queen, then every wife is going to disrespect their husbands and we're going to, this is setting a bad example. And so the king said, right, because my wife has done this, I'm going to remove her as queen and I'm going to select a new queen. And they sent out word into all the empire saying that the most beautiful, the most choice virgins would be set aside and come to the king's palace and they would go through a time and a season of preparation and cleansing and perfuming and shaving and waxing and toning and, and facial masks and massages and pedicures and manicures and the whole shebang for a month just to get ready to become and, 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 and display before the king. And one of these young ladies was a girl, a Jewish name Hadessa, Persian name Esther. That's the girl we're talking about this morning. And she was chosen because she was incredibly beautiful. Esther has an interesting story. Both her parents died when she was very young. She was raised by what's called her uncle, but in essence was actually her cousin, just a lot older than her, Mordecai, who was a, a Jewish man, a God-fearing man, and an honorable man. Now, while some of these things were happening, Mordecai lived uh, near in the palace grounds, and he spent a lot of, of, of time around there, and he got wind of a plot that two of the king's eunuchs uh, two of his doorkeepers actually had uh, had a plot to kill and oust the king. And while basically, I backtrack a little bit, all of these, these, these virgins came to the palace. Eventually, the king chose Esther, the most beautiful, to be the new queen she is instated. Now, Mordecai found out about this plot. He told Esther, who is now the queen. Esther told the king. He launched an inquiry and found out that these two men were indeed plotting to kill him. And... Obviously, the plot was thwarted, and these two men were put to death. 
Uh, a little while later, the king promotes one of uh, one of his his advisors called Haman to, vir to, to virtually the two IC within the whole empire. He's a very powerful man. He set him over all the princes of the various of the various regions. So this now is a very powerful and influential man. But this is a very proud and insecure man, a very pomp man. And so he's now coming in and out of, of, the, of the palace grounds, and he is wanting people to acknowledge his greatness and his status and his position, which Mordecai refuses to do. He doesn't give him the platitudes. He doesn't pay him homage or give him honor. He doesn't bow to him when he comes around. And you could ask why. Well, it, Haman was a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were Israel's sworn enemies for generations and, and generations and generations. And so, and so Mordecai was not going to be bowing and giving homage uh, along to, to this man called Haman. Being super upset about this, feeling slighted as though his reputation was you know, at stake here, Haman wants to deal with Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. He actually wants to deal with Mordecai and all the Jews. Because again, the Amalekites and the Jews are sworn enemies for generations, and he sees this as an opportunity. So he says to the king, this is Haman, king, there's a group of people within your kingdom that are not subject to your laws. They're not following the decrees that you are making. They're not doing what they're told. And I think we should have them all destroyed and wiped out, purge the land from the living, if you like. And the king gives him permission. He gives him permission. He gives him resources. And he says, go ahead and do this. Again, Mordecai, who clearly has his ear very closely to the ground, he's, uh, he, he knows what's going on. He's got connections. He finds out about this plan to destroy the Jews. And so he, again, speaks to Esther, who is the queen. And he says to her, Esther, you need to do something about the situation. And she says to him, you know, I can't just go into the king anytime I want to and, and, and tell him, you know, share my heart with him. It doesn't work like that. Unless the king summons me, I can't come to him. And if I do go to him, if he extends his scepter to me, then it's all right. Then, I, then, then he will give me an audience. But if he does not, I will be put to death. And this is in that context where Mordecai says to his cousin that he has raised, Esther 4.14, if you remain completely silent at this time, in other words, Esther, if you don't say anything, if you do nothing, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. I love that statement. Mordecai's confidence in God is absolute. He knows that deliverance will come because God will honor his word, whether it's through you or some other way. But then he says, but, but, who, but, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether God did not position you, Esther, as a Hebrew girl, strategically in the kingdom, so that you can have the ear, the, the ear of the king in such a time as this. What is seldom quoted after the scripture, though, and this is what I want to draw attention to today, is Esther's response. She says in verses 15 and 16 of Esther chapter 4, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, day or night. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. We think that Esther, on the back of that word of Mordecai, went to the king. That's not true. I know that's often the narrative that's played out. It's only part true. She did go to the king, but only after three days. The first thing that, that she did. In essence, if I want to sum up the prophetic word that was spoken this morning, if I want to sum up some of the things Craig has said and some of the things I've already alluded to this morning, the first thing that Esther did was give herself and call the people to join her in prayer to change the atmosphere in the heavenlies before she did a single thing. She called the people to fasting and prayer. And what was the result of that? I, I love this. In essence, after this time of fasting and prayer, Esther goes to the king. He extends his scepter towards her. He calls her and he says, my queen, what do you, why have you come? What do you want? Ask, give me your request. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What is it that you want? She had great favor with the king. And she says, 
Ken, I would like to invite you, as well as Haman, this very honorable, very important man, to a special banquet. And so they come. They come to the special banquet that she has laid on for them. There's a lot of wine. There's a lot of good stuff. And they're at the banquet. The king says to her again, what do you, what do you want? Why are you doing all of this? And she says, obviously, I believe, I believe under the leading of the Lord. She says, I, haven't, I want to make another banquet for you tomorrow. Can you come to another banquet tomorrow? In my heart and in my mind, I'm saying, Esther, why are you dragging your feet on this? What is this all about? I believe in my heart that Esther knew she had some kind of sense that the timing wasn't right yet. There were still things that needed to shift. There were still things, the pieces that needed to fall into place. I want to say in your life, in our country, in our situation, there are still things at work. There are still pieces that are falling into place. But God is at work. Continue to pray. So what then happens is, that afternoon, Haman goes down to his, his wife and his family, uh, and he, he tells them, uh, you know, first of all, that, um, that, that he's, you know, feeling very important now. He has been invited by the queen to a special banquet with the king that she herself is laying on for them. And he's telling his family all about this. And he says, but you know, in me, I'm still frustrated. I'm still angry because even though I'm getting all this honor, what does it mean if I can be disrespected by this man Mordecai? You know, it doesn't really mean anything. It's one thing to be respected, but these guys are still, he's still not respecting me. And so his friends, as he's sitting around, says to him, why don't you? I mean, the king, king has given you the decree. He's given you the permission. Build gallows today. And then tomorrow morning, go, before you go to the banquet, go and hang Mordecai as an example and get this thing started, get the ball rolling. So here we see a situation going from bad to worse. <laughs> it seems like, oh my goodness, they started praying, they started fasting, Esther is, is working things out and the enemy is vehemently resisting. However, God is at work. That night, for some reason, we know the reason, God is at work. The king can't sleep. And so what he asks for is he calls for his servants and he says, come and read me the Chronicles. The Chronicles are like the diary of the things that have taken place, the things that have been captured, what's going on in the kingdom is what he's basically saying. Since I can't sleep, I might as well take care of business. Tell me what's been going on. Tell me what's happening. And in the Chronicles, the king finds out and is reminded about this man called Mordecai who warned the king through Esther that there was this plot to have him killed. And he asks his servant, what was done for this man? He actually saved my life. He's worthy of honor and, and, and prestige. What, what happened to him? What, what was given to him? And they say, well, actually nothing. So the king calls Hamalim, this powerful man. And he says, this is like first thing in the morning, I guess, you know, it's before anything else has happened. So the king issues a call for Haman. Haman comes in and the king says to him, Haman, what should be done by the king to honor a man. If the king wants to honor a man and give him great honor and prestige in the eyes of the people, what do you think the king should do? Well, Haman thinking and assuming, of course, the king is talking about me, right? I mean, I've just been made too. I see I'm in being invited in by the queen. And he comes up with this elaborate idea that he should be given a robe that the king has worn and placed on a horse and ridden on horseback through the square and have it declared to all the people that this is a man of honor, that the king wants to esteem highly. And he is so puffed up in himself that he lays out this elaborate idea of exactly what he would like to happen. And the king says, Haman, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That is a brilliant idea. I want you to please go and do that for Mordecai. <laughs> I think I can't imagine how shattered this man must have been. Absolutely broken. On the morning that he was going to hang this man for his disrespect, he is being commissioned by the king to pay him the greatest honor that he could imagine. I mean, if that's not God at work, I don't know. That's amazing. So there it is. This happens. Mordecai is honored in front of all the people. Haman, I assume, is cringing in the fetal position in a corner going, mommy, mommy, what happened here? And not quite understanding what has just hit him. 
So nonetheless, he can't now just hang this man in, 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 in broad daylight that the king has just bestowed this great honor on. So he's going back to his family. He's telling them now everything that has happened. And while he's still talking, the king's eunuchs come and call him and say, Mr. Haman, sir, it's time for you to come to the banquet. So he goes to the banquet this day that the queen has prepared. And again, the king is, you know, he says to, he says to his wife, Esther, to the queen, he says, this is now the second banquet. What is it that you want? Are you buttering me up for something? Is this covered love? Why? What's, what's really going on here? Ask me what you want. I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she tells him that there is somebody that is plotting to kill not just her, but her people, her entire nation. And the king says, this is atrocious. Who on earth would do such a thing? Let's deal with him immediately. And she reveals to the king that the person behind this plot is the man sitting in their presence, Haman, the king's most trusted man. And the king is furious and he doesn't know what to do in this situation now. He's promoted this man. And so he walks out. He goes out into the garden, into the palace garden. And he's now trying to, I suppose, get his thoughts, trying to understand what's going on, trying to come up with an idea or a strategy. And when he eventually comes back in, the queen is still sitting there. Haman is pleading for his life in front of the queen, and he has thrown himself on her couch. Uh, not acceptable behavior in the presence of the queen. And so the king comes in and he says, you know, what? look at this man. Is it not enough that he wants to kill her? I mean, he's throwing himself upon her now. And so one of the king's servants says, you know, king, there's gallows that have just been built out front. Let's sort this man out and put him on the gallows, to which the king gives the decree. And Haman is hanged on his own plan. His own plan to thwart the people and the purposes of God came upon himself. Folks, what we see in this whole story, that's where I'll end it. There's more that goes on. Uh, there's great favor that God pours out through, um, through, through Esther. She instates Mordecai to a position of great power and influence within the, within the nation. And we see God's, God's, what, God, what, what the enemy intended for evil, God restructured the whole thing, put his people in place, not only to preserve his people, but to bring them to great blessing and great influence within the kingdom and within the empire. What's clear for me is God's intervention in the situation. And what's clear to me is that this intervention came not just because somebody happened to be called for a time such as this, but because somebody was willing to put herself aside, to fast and pray, and if necessary, lay her life on the line for such a time as this. I'll read it again. She said, go, gather all the Jews present in Shushan and fast for me. I don't eat or drink for three days. I, day or night, I will do the same. My maids will do the same. And then I will go to the king. You see, folks, Esther was more than just a pretty face. She was royalty with great influence who was in the right place at the right time. And I want to say to you this morning, you, as you look at yourself on the screen, are more than just a pretty face. You are royalty with great power and influence in the right place at the right time. Believing that makes all the difference. You see, you and I have a role to play in the sphere of influence that God has placed us in. And this is why it's important that we find a sense of peace and security in God, that as, as Esther did, so that we can follow his lead into the unknown. You know, uh, something that just powerfully dropped into my heart this week is a statement, and I want to share the statement with you. And this is the statement. God goes before those who follow him. There's a couple of verses in scripture. I'll share this with you. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, The Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. Isaiah 45 verse 2 in the Passion Translation. I will march in, out in front of you and level every obstacle. I will shatter to pieces 
bronze doors and slice through iron bars. Folks, these are the things that God will do. But who will he do them for? He will do them for those who follow him. God goes before those who follow him. If we're not following him, we're going in a different direction. Amen. God is on the move. God is at work. His spirit is at work. The heavenly hosts are at work. And what he's calling us into is to realize that where he has placed us is that we may find out and discover what it is that God is up to in my heart, in my family, in my workplace, in my suburb, my neighborhood, my country, so that I may follow him. I'm no longer trying to get God to meet my needs and get God to, 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 to make sure that I'm safe, that I'm taken care of, that my future is secure. No, that's trying to get God into what I'm doing. And Jesus, like we said in the beginning, he's saying, forget about all that. Trust and believe wholeheartedly that God will take care of that because there is a higher agenda. There is a bigger plan that I want to bring you into. And I will lead you in it, but you must follow. You need to follow. Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. There's a few more scriptures that I want to read to you as we, as we just to kind of bring this message to a very practical conclusion. Ephesians chapter 6, we're familiar, very, very familiar with this portion of scripture. It's from verses 10 through to 18. I'm reading from the New King James. And remember, we're talking about a place of strength. We're talking about a place of security in God. And this is what Paul writes. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles, what does that mean? The schemes, the plans. You know, the enemy's got plans. And in case and in certain situations where people give their hearts to those plans and agendas, they are done on earth as it is in his mind, as it is in the heavenlies. But we have been called to put, give our hearts and minds to the kingdom of God so that it may be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, God is calling us to stand against the schemes of the enemy. Esther stood against the schemes of the enemy, first and foremost in the place of prayer. And then by the leading of the spirit, she approached the king. And I believe by the leading of the spirit followed a divinely inspired plan that led to the will of God coming to fruition. This is what Esther had to do in her situation. And I want to say to you, believer, this is what you and I need to do in our situation. But we need to remember who it is that we are fighting. We are not fighting a person. We are not fighting a political party. We are not fighting a government official. We are not fighting a family member, a boss, an employee. Verse 12 from the same portion of scripture goes on to say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where we are warring. That's where the battle is taking place. That's why Paul says, therefore, in other words, as a result of this, take up the armor of God, not human armor, not natural armor, God's armor that you may be able to withstand the schemes and the enemies in the evil day and having done all to stand, to stand your ground, to not give in, to, 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 to bear the flag by the strength and the grace of God. He goes on to say, stand therefore, and then he gives us a whole bunch of, of, of tools or weapons by which we can wage the warfare. I'm not going to read them all to you now, but I'm going to sum up the essence of them for the sake of time. Here's the essence. He says, this is what you're going to need. Truth, the belt of truth. You're going to need righteousness, the breastplate. You're going to need peace, the shoes, the shoes with the gospel of peace. Faith, the shield of faith. Helmet of salvation and the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. In other words, the way we wage our warfare is through these weapons, through truth. 
We war according to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he is the Messiah, that he is the name above every name. We war according to righteousness, to know that we are in right standing with God. Therefore, we carry his authority. We war from a place of peace, knowing that we are safe and secure in him, knowing that when we pray, things happen, knowing that he has a plan and he's calling us into it. We pray from a place of faith. Faith. Knowing. Full with all our heart and trusting completely in his words and his promises. We pray and we war from a place of salvation. Sozo, the wholeness, the restored person, spirit, soul, body, and mind. And we warfare according to the word of God. These wonderful weapons that God has given us mean that we war not for victory, but we war from victory. We come from a completely different world, from a completely different mindset. And so likewise, in the same way that Jesus prayed about the disciples, I don't pray that you take them out of this world, but in a sense that they realize that they are not from this world. They do not war or do things according to this world's way and system. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verses three to five say a similar thing. And I'm going to read it to you from the Passion Translation because it's not as familiar but it brings it across in a, in, a, in a fresh way. It says this, although we live in the natural realm, we don't wage a military campaign employing human weapons, using manipulation to achieve our aims. Instead, our spiritual weapons are energized with divine power to effectively dismantle the defenses behind which people hide. We can demolish every deceptive fantasy that opposes God and break through every arrogant attitude that is raised up in defiance of the true knowledge of God. I mean, I just see that so clearly portrayed in the story of Esther we looked at this morning with Haman. Those plans and those schemes. He goes on to say, we capture like prisoners of war every thought and insist that it bow in obedience to the anointed one. What an incredible, incredible reality. What an incredible truth. And it's wonderful to know that. But my question or my personal, you know, so I know that. Okay, so what does that mean for me, God? Where do I start? How do I work this out? For that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We've got two more scriptures I want to read to you this morning to round this out. And I will finish what I have to say today. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27. So God has called us. To wage a warfare by these incredible weapons that he has given us, which are all rooted in who he is and in our security in him. To wage a warfare, to bring about declarations, prophecies into the heavenlies. To bring about change. Here is what Romans 8 verse 26 to 27 says. Likewise, the spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Let's pause there for a moment. How do I pray this stuff down? How do I know what to focus on? Like Pastor Andreas said, there's things going on in the spiritual realm. And if we have prophetic eyes and spiritual eyes, we can see these things. But how do we pray into that? Well, I like what Paul says here. He says, you know what? We ought to know what to pray. <laughs> that really stood out to me this week. The reality is very often I don't know what to pray. You don't know what to pray. Paul didn't know what to pray. But we ought to know how, what to pray. Why? Because God has given us his spirit. And so he goes on to say, the spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I want to say, say you something here. First of all, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we know that there is this, that, that we're not just a pretty face. We're called for a time and a season such as we are in to pray into the heavenlies, to make declarations according to the word of God, that he is going before us 
that there is a shift that is taking place and we have a role to play, not just nationally in our nation, but in my neighborhood, in the lives of the people around me who God loves, but whose hearts are still close to his love. In my workplace, in the atmosphere, in my home. So there's this awareness that I need to bring about spiritual change, atmosphere, change in the atmosphere, but also the awareness that I don't know how to do it. And that is really good. Because that stops me from coming to God with my solutions to the problem. <laughs> my solutions to the problem. How many of us come to God with our solutions to the problem? You know, God, if you would just do this and that, and then please sort that one out and take that one out of power and maybe put this one there. And if you would just show that one this, and if only they could see this. And, and I think that's enough for today. God, we'll, we'll chat again tomorrow morning and I'll give you further instructions. That's very often how we pray into these areas. And those prayers have no power because they're our prayers and they're our will. That's why we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We ought to know what to pray for. And I do believe that God brings us to the place where we do know what to pray for. We do know how to cooperate with him. But it comes by the Spirit of God. He says that the Spirit prays for us. It makes the statement twice. The second time it makes the statement, it means that the Spirit is praying for you. So in, in essence, if I was the Holy Spirit, I'm praying, Father God, please bless Robin. Please show him your love. Please do this. In it. So the Spirit is praying on my behalf for me. But the first time it's saying this, it's saying, I should be praying. I don't know what to pray. And so the Spirit does my praying for me. That's what it means. It means that he is actually, I am actually giving him the freedom to use my mouth, my heart, my body, my, my, who I am to pray the prayers that need to be prayed that the will of God may be done. In other words, he comes in and he does the work for me. Isn't that incredible? But I need to cooperate with that. And that's where we draw from Esther again. Fasting, prayer time set aside to allow god to use me you are not just a pretty face you are not occupying space in the kingdom but god can use you as a vessel for his glory for his honor to bring about great shifts in the atmosphere of the areas of influence that he has given to you highly powerful and highly influential. This is the way, it's the last scripture. This is the way James says it in the second part of James 5, verse 16. The Amplified Bible says it this way The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. That word available is a wonderful word. It's made up of two words. Number one is to avail. To avail yourself means that you make you make yourself available, but it it has to it's a proactive thing. It is not a an, a passive thing. It is very proactive. And what the other part word is able. In other words, you are empowered. You are capable. Is another good word to say there. So when we present ourselves to God. As available, available, we are able to avail his kingdom in our hearts, in our lives, and in our situations. How do we do that? By allowing our hearts, our bodies, our minds, our mouths to be used by his Holy Spirit to pray his prayers, to speak his words into the heavenlies. Folks, Praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us. Why? Because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Holy Spirit does. And he enables us to pray into our situations, into the circumstances, his words, his plans, his purposes. So that we can catch wind of them, just like Mordecai kept catching wind of what is going on, that we can speak them out. So that God's plans, so that the enemy's plans can be revealed, can be exposed, so that they can be dealt with, and so that God's plans can come to fruition. 
Folks, in the time and the season we are in, if you want to talk about it nationally, we can. Uh, Pastor Andreas is absolutely right. We're in a time where there is much exposing going on. Much is being exposed. And this is a good thing. We are frustrated sometimes, I think, that the wheels of justice seem to turn as slowly as they do. But there are things being exposed. God has a plan. Things are coming to the surface. And I want to say to you, if we gather Sunday after Sunday, just so that we can feel secure, loved, blessed, we've missed the point completely. You and I have a role to play from our place of being loved, blessed, chosen citizens of God. And our role begins not out there on the streets. Our role begins not in the workplace. That's where it's worked out. But our role begins in the place of prayer. Where we allow the spirit of God to inspire us to pray that which is on the heart and mind of God. I guarantee you that when you do that, God will give you strategies, just like he gave to Esther. When you do that, God will give you insight into the plans of the enemies, that you may speak, that you may cast them down, that you may take them captive into the obedience of Jesus Christ. And he will give you insight into his plans and purposes, that you may speak and prophesy and declare those over your life, over your loved ones, over your workplace, that we may be the people who bring about kingdom influence and change into our situations by the prayers that we pray, by the declarations and the prophecies that we make that come from the heart of God. Believer, you are more than just a pretty face. Face it. <laughs> and I want to just encourage you this morning. Remember, I said to you, the one thing I wanted to, to get across this morning is the realization of just how much influence and power God has given you where you are. All he requires from you and from me is availability. Give the Lord time. Give him your mouth. Allow him to pray in the spirit. I remember a little while ago, I can't even say it was years ago, struggling in what to pray. God once said to me, you know what, Michael, just give me your mouth. Sit down, give me half an hour and pray in the spirit. That'll do far more good than you trying to figure out what to pray and kind of just avail yourself to me. What a blessing that is. How do I pray for each person in the congregation? I pray in the spirit. Sometimes that leads to a, 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 a phone call saying, hey, I had this impression. Sometimes that leads to specific prayers. Other times not. But at least I know. I know that by the spirit, I'm praying prayers that are God's heart and God's mind. And I want to encourage you in that, folks. It's been a slightly longer message this morning. Thank you for your patience and endurance with me. But I felt I needed to, to get this across, especially in light of the things that God brought onto Craig's heart for this morning that I knew nothing about and he knew nothing about what I was going to share. Concerning the prophetic word, Pastor Andreas, we have a wonderful role to play and we should be excited about that. So let's not be passive in this time. Let's be active and allow God to do wonderful and amazing things that he may establish his kingdom, his church, his people, for his glory. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.